Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact. I was taught to be proper. Behave yourself, um, you going out in public, to always know that the white man was listening. With the Black Panthers coming to the scene, it was just a completely different message. As a 12-year-old, you know, what? You had this whole other portrayal of self and just digging it. 2016 marks 50 years since the founding of the Black Panther Party, a group that took the world by storm, but is still widely misunderstood. There's a new documentary film that's trying to set the record straight. On this edition of Making Contact, journalist Eric Arnold talks with Stanley Nelson, director of The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. I'm Eric Arnold from Oak Culture, and we're here today with Stanley Nelson, the director of The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution, a new documentary on the revolutionary activists from Oakland, California. Now, Stanley, before doing this film, you made documentaries on Emmett Till, The Freedom Riders, and Freedom Summer. How did the Panthers fit into this historical arc? Well, first I should say that I never intended to have a historical arc. <laughs> the film just kind of fell into place in, in one way or the other. But I think, you know, the, the last film that I made of those three was Freedom Summer. And it ends with the kind of um, uh, disillusionment that happened at the uh, Democratic uh, national convention where the Freedom Democratic Party from Mississippi is kind of has their legs cut out from under them by uh, Lyndon Johnson and other people in the Democratic Party. And so many people, you know, in, in SNCC and, and others in the movement were really disillusioned by that because it was a feeling that, you know, as long as we do the right thing, if we follow the rules, if we do the right thing, you know, you're going to support us. You know, you'll, you'll understand what we're doing. You're going to support us. But they were proven wrong at the Democratic National Convention. And the film ends, one of the last shots in the film is Stokely Carmichael yelling, black power, black power, black power, black power. And uh, one of the first images in, in, in the Panthers film is Stokely Carmichael yelling, black power, black power. You tell them white folk in Mississippi that all the scared niggas are dead. We want black power. We want black power. So there is a continuum there, and the story picks right up. Now, the model of your production company, Firelight Films, is changing the story. In your opinion, what about the Black Panther story needed to be changed? Um, I think that, you know, there's so much to change about the story. I think that the way the Panthers were felt about at the time they existed in their strength, you know, 1966 to 72 or three or so, is very different from the way, you know, they're thought about 40, 50 years later. At the time, you know, the Panthers um, had made, you know, coalitions with so many other groups, you know, the women's movement, the student movement, the anti-war movement, and that's all been kind of forgotten, you know, it's almost like, you know, when the Panthers are talked about at all, it's like this kind of isolationist, you know, militant black man, you know, who just wants to kill white people and kill cops and, you know, is out there on an island by themselves, and that's not who the Panthers were, and that's not who, what they were thought about at the time. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the third world student movement, uh, there is a lot of uh, historical connection and uh, solidarity over that. Now, the film's narrative, um, it, it kind of traces the historical arc of the Panthers. We go from the early days in Oakland to the nationalizing of the movement to the leadership schism and the ultimate decline. Uh, how would you describe the Panther legacy? Is it just one thing or is it many things? I think the Panther legacy is many things, you know. I mean, concretely, you know, it exists in the in the Breakfast for Children program that the Panthers started. There was no government Breakfast for Children program at the time. Now all over the country, you know, it's known that you got to feed kids breakfast. Uh, I think there's, a, you know, another legacy in just the attitude of the Panthers. You know, you never saw uh, a black person get up in, in a white person's face and say, no, no, you're wrong. This is what, you know, in that in the way that the Panthers did, that aggressive attitude that is, you know, is so much of who we are today. You know, I, I had never seen that. That was one of the things that, you know, startled me and startled so many young people, you know, when the Panthers came out. So there's that legacy. Uh, there's the legacy of, of do it yourself, which was part of what the Panthers stood for, you know, is, you know, OK, you know, this isn't being done. We love your help, but without it, we're going to do without it. We'll figure out a way to get things done ourselves. When I first met you and Bobby, they were in the process of forming an organization for uh, primarily self-defense. We didn't plan to have a nationwide organization, anything like that. We were organizing, dealing with the problems in Oakland. One interesting aspect of Vanguard is the role of women in the party. I mean, you prominently feature Kathleen Cleaver, Joan Tarika Lewis, uh, and Elaine Brown. Looking back, how much do you think the lack of gender balance and the, the overt chauvinism uh, was a limiting factor? I'm not sure. You know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, you have to understand that, you know, the Panthers, you know, in the context of their day. You know, I mean, you're you're dealing in 1966, you know, 1972, when this society was, you know, for the most part, a very chauvinistic society. If you look at the traditional civil rights movement of Martin Luther King, you know, that was a very chauvinistic movement. Uh, even the women were were the backbone of the movement, were behind the scenes. You know, um, they were the catalyst in some way. They were keeping that engine running. Now, I think it's the same thing uh, with the Panthers. Although I think the Panthers professed to put women out in front. I mean, they really wanted to do that and tried to do that. It didn't always work, you know, and there were, were was obviously machismo and, and other problems within the Panthers. But I think, you know, they did state it as a goal, which was very rare at that time. But, you know, as somebody says in the film, you know, by the early 1970s, the Black Panthers were majority female which is something that, that, you know, I didn't know going into it, and I think very very few people, you know, that, that that's who the Panthers were. Yeah, I walked into the office and told them I wanted to join the Black Panther Party, and they kind of <laughs> laughed. I didn't know that there were any other women, you know, in the party at that time. But then I asked them, could I have a gun? Now let's just talk about Oakland for a minute. I mean, it is the birthing ground of the Panthers, and the point is made in the film that this movement was different from the Civil Rights Movement, which was a Southern movement. Could the Black Panthers have started anywhere else but Oakland? I mean, you know, that's a hard question because, you know, 
Could they have started somewhere else? Yeah, maybe, but they didn't. They started here in Oakland. I think that's significant. I think that there there were there were certain factors in Oakland that were different from other places. You know, the the police in Oakland were brutal, and they were known to be brutal. And you know, Oakland had this large black population, but without representation really on the police force. You know, and and, and so there's that. You know, you had you know black people who were educated in in Oakland. You know, Panthers came out of college. You know, that's where they started. So. So that's in Oakland. And also, you know, Oakland is a relatively small city compared to a place like, you know, New York or Chicago, where you might feel like, you know, our problems are insurmountable. You know, we can't fix this because it's too big. You know, in, in Oakland, you know, you could say, well, wait a minute. You know, we can fix this and let's do it. But who knows? The civil rights movement was basically a Southern movement. So when you had an organization like the Panthers, who were taking on things like housing and welfare and health, that was stuff that people in the North could relate to and rally behind. Our attack was not only against white supremacy, but it was also about capitalism. We actually thought that the way in which capitalism created a working class that was kept absolutely destitute, was, that was wrong. So we took the position that in order for us to be free, that system had to be dismantled. We could not be free in a system that had oppressed us in the first place. So you have to get rid of that system. Um, now, watching the film, it's striking how much the conditions described are still apparent today. Um, why has the 10-point program, for instance, uh, why has that remained relevant? Well, I think because it, <laughs> the, the, the problems addressed in the 10-point program were never rectified, were never solved. I mean, you know, we talk about police brutality. The Panthers started, you know, as a result of the police brutality in, in Oakland. You know, we've had police brutality before the Panthers, after the Panthers, and we have police brutality today. It was never solved. Ten points, you know, the one of them is unemployment. We still have that, you know, uh, today, you know, better schools. Our schools are still just like they were. They're still segregated for the most part. We haven't progressed, you know, um, like we wanted to. I think the thing to think about is that you know, the civil rights movement was successful and changed the lives drastically for a limited number of black people. But for the majority of black people, I, you know, I, would, I, I think you could make an argument for the majority of black people, it didn't change their lives all that much. You know, they're still living in segregated communities. They're still going to segregated schools. They're still dealing with problems of, of unemployment. They're still dealing with problems of police brutality. They're still dealing with problems of racism, you know, rampant racism in this country. So things changed on the surface. You know, they're, they're symbols. We can, we can look at a black president and we can look at, you know, uh, black heads of different corporations. So again, you know, it, it changed the fortunes of a few black people drastically. But for the most part, I don't think our lives are that much different. People always talked about freedom and, and what that means. During that time period, being black in America meant that you didn't walk down the street with the same sense of safety and the same sense of privilege as a white person. Now, moving away from Oakland for a minute, how important was it for you to go into detail about the police actions against the L.A. Panthers? Was you know there there were some things in, in in the history of the Panther Party that were repeated over and over again. So there were raids everywhere. You know there were raids all over the country. So you know we can't talk about twenty raids. I mean you know you 
die of boredom. So how do we take one raid and use that to kind of illustrate, you know, uh, what was going on in other places? And we chose to use the raid in L.A. because it was just an amazing event because the Panthers had uh, fortified the headquarters, would put sandbags around the, the, the walls, and they had actually poured dirt in between the outer and inner walls. So they had, like, built this fortress for themselves in L.A. And so when the cops come, this shootout lasts for five hours, which allows the press to get there. So there's actual footage of the shootout. Amazing. And that was the first time that uh, the SWAT teams were deployed, right? Yeah, L.A. had the first SWAT team in the country, and this was the first time that the uh, SWAT team had had delivered what they called a high-risk warrant, basically breaking down the door. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to more of a conversation with Stanley Nelson, director of the documentary film The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. He's speaking with journalist Eric Arnold. Fred Hampton is one of the lesser-known Panther leaders, but he's also one of the most charismatic and articulate. Um, So why was it important to include him? Well, I thought that, you know, Fred Hampton is a great story, and it's a story that a lot of people don't know. Fred Hampton was the the Panther leader in in Illinois, in in Chicago. He assumed the deputy chairmanship of of that chapter when he was 20 years old. And, uh, you know, one of the things that that Fred did that was maybe a little bit different from some of the Panther leaders around the country was that, you know, that that Fred had come out of the standard civil rights movement. He had been the NAACP youth leader in Chicago. So he had come out of that movement. And he was really pushing for this kind of uh, union of different groups in Chicago. So he uh, made peace and, and was politicizing Latino street gangs, uh, politicizing a group that became the Young Patriot Party, which were kind of uh, poor white people who, who had come down from Appalachia, what they called hillbillies. They actually called them hillbillies in Chicago. And he was uh, forging unions uh, and coalitions with, with those groups. And, um, you know, to J. Edgar Hoover, that was a very dangerous thing. All of a sudden, one day, this black orator, who at that time was 20 years old, starts talking to these people, and all of a sudden, it's like a magnet. The deputy chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton! And I just want to tell you that the chairman of the Black Panther Party is going to be ungagged and they're going to have to take those chains off. Bobby Fields going through all types of physical and mental torture. But that's all right, because we said even before this happened, and we're going to say it after this, and after I'm locked up, and after everybody's locked up, that you can jail revolutionaries, but you can't jail a revolution. Now, speaking of J. Edgar Hoover, uh, Vanguard also describes in detail the COINTELPRO government campaign against the Panthers, and Hoover is quoted repeatedly, which 
Uh, they're pretty eye-opening. Uh, why did you think that was uh, you know, critical to include in your film? Well, you know, it, it's almost like, you know, what, what I call these urban rumors that we have, you know, where we hear, you know, oh, the FBI destroyed the Panthers. Oh, the FBI, you know, was after the Panthers. But we really wanted to show that the FBI was after the Panthers. I mean, it wasn't paranoia. You know, and the FBI, you know, which is really startling, documented their pursuit of the Panthers and, and their dirty tricks that they played, you know, on members of the Panthers. And those things were all documented. And so, you know, it, it was great for us to be able to use the actual documents documents issued by the FBI where they say, you know, we have to set Huey against Eldridge Cleaver and Eldridge Cleaver against Huey Newton. We've got to set spouse against spouse. You know, do anything that you can, do anything that you want, Jigger Hoover told his agents. Uh, just don't let it get back that it's the FBI doing it. And, you know, he said that the Black Panthers were the uh, number one uh, threat to the internal security of the United States. So, you know, he, he made the Panthers public enemy number one and went after him with everything he had. He did. He did. And I think that quote actually is referring not to necessarily the militant aspects, but to the breakfast program. Right. He also said that, that the most dangerous thing that the Panthers were doing was the breakfast for children program, because that was swaying the hearts and minds of children and also of their parents. Do you feel the nation is in trouble? I think very definitely it is. But what is the answer? The answer is vigorous law enforcement. That's the only answer. That's the only answer. How about justice? You hear a lot about justice with law enforcement. Justice is merely incidental to law and order. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover today asserted that the Black Panthers represent the greatest internal threat to the nation. Hoover said the Panthers have perpetrated numerous assaults on police, and have engaged in violent confrontations throughout the country. The FBI arranged for the Black Panthers to get guns through informants. They would convince the police that the Panthers had weapons. They had to go in and be ready to be shot at, so the police went in and shot at them first. Now, there's a lot of material about the Panthers' look and style, uh, which was, you know, a template for black exploitation heroes like Shaft and Superfly, as well as a huge influence on hip hop culture, which would come out a generation later. What was so powerful about the, what you refer to in the film as the urban black is beautiful aesthetic? Well, you know, we're, you're coming right out of out of the uh, civil rights movement, you know, which was where, you know, you're having you have Martin Luther King and and Ralph Abernathy and others who are very church based and they're very, wearing suits and ties, and you know, the women are are encouraged to wear dresses, you know, when they go on the freedom rides or on the marches, and sometimes they even wear little white gloves, and that was kind of the look, that was that was the idea. But the Panthers came out, they were totally different, you know, they were wearing black leather jackets and big afros and sunglasses and berets, cock to the side. So they looked hip. They looked cool. It was like, oh my God, who are these people? You know, I mean, and it looked beautiful. You know, I mean, let's face it, you know, and it looked beautiful not only to black people, but to white people. We were a phenomenon. The way that we walked and talked and dressed. We had swag. It was a rhythm. It was a rhythm to how we spoke. It was a rhythm to how we walked. And the people recognized that we stood out outside of that on the street. They, ooh, that's a butt ugly person. Ooh, they ugly. But in a party, 
it was just something that gave them this tremendous sex appeal. The Panthers didn't invent the idea of black is beautiful. Uh, people had started wearing afros and dashikis. But one of the things that Panthers did was that urban black is beautiful. And that look just blew people away. If you were a young black man living in the city anywhere, you wanted to be like this. You wanted to dress like this, you wanted to act like this, you wanted to talk like this, you wanted to be this. Now, how did you choose the music for this film? What, what criteria did you use? We wanted to use a lot of period music because we felt that the music of the times really reflected the Panther movement and what was going on, and it, and it helps you to understand the movement because there was song after song about revolution. There was song after song about being black. You know, am I black enough for you? Black is, black is me, black is you. You know, there are all these songs that really reflected on the times, and so we wanted to kind of give the whole film, the whole idea, this bed, that this is what you were hearing. You know, you turned on your radio. This is what you were hearing, and, and so this kind of revolution, this change, was really in the air. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Gil Scott Heron's Winter in America is used as backdrop music while the Panthers' 10-point program is read by different people. And now it's winter It feel like winter in America Yes, yeah, time when all of the hillers, brothers who could help us done been killed. They put them in jails. Yeah, people know it's something wrong. Everybody ought to know when I The Black Panther Party platform and program. What we want, what we believe. We want decent housing, fit for the shelter of human beings. Nobody knows what to say. We want education for our people. We want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. We want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice. Nobody knows what to say. Why did you choose that particular song? Well, you know, this this comes at the very end of the film, and and I thought that you know, uh, you know, one, I love the song, but I too, I thought that you know, Winter in America, really kind of spells out kind of uh, you know where we are today. You know, you know, all of the brothers who can help us have done been killed or been betrayed. That sentiment that you know we are we're we're in winter in America. You know, um, we we went through a time after the Panthers, after this period of the 70s, where we didn't have a lot of kind of social movement or, or, or widespread social movement or widespread social action. You know, it's people weren't talking about revolution, you know, on TV every night like the Panthers were. And, uh, you know, we just we wanted to just give that feeling. It's interesting because Gil Scott Heron was a very outspoken critic of Ronald Reagan. And then if you go back to the... Panthers and the Sacramento rally, 
Reagan emerges as one of the preeminent villains uh, in that story, so to speak. Well, in one way, he's a villain. One way, he's a hero of the story because what happens is the Panthers, you know, they they decide that they're going to take their guns because guns were it was legal to carry guns in in California as long as they were out in the open, you could carry a loaded gun. And they're about to change that law, partially because of the Panthers. They're going to change that law, and the Panthers go to Sacramento and storm the state capitol. And Ronald Reagan just happens to be there. He's the governor of California at that time. He's on the lawn, you know, uh, giving a speech to some parochial school kids. And as the Panthers walk by, the press just, you know, turns their cameras and starts following the Panthers, as they would when you see, you know, 10 and 20 black men with guns storming into the state capitol. And so they follow the Panthers. And this is really what puts the Panthers on the map. You know, you hear the announcer from the news that night in the film, and he says, and this group that calls themselves the Black Panthers have invaded. You know, nobody knew about the Black Panthers. Nobody knew what the Black Panthers were, especially, you know, outside of California. But once they invade the Capitol with their guns, you know, now they're on the front page of newspapers. They're the lead story in the news and all over the country. People are seeing, you know, for the first time, the Black Panthers and a certain number of people, young people, black people are saying, you know, as one guy says, I wanted to join whatever that was. Yeah. And and you talk about how almost overnight uh, the movement became a national one. And it's in Washington, D.C. It's in North Carolina. It's in Chicago. The Panther movement just takes off. I think one of the things that that really works in the film is that, as Kathleen Cleaver says, you know, it almost takes off too fast. So in some ways, the the seeds uh, of of its destruction are part of of its uh, its inception. It's catching on. As another guy says, as as the movement is exploding, we didn't have time to check people out to do background checks. If you wanted to join the Black Panthers, come on in. Well, you see later on, you know, that that they're infiltrated from top to bottom, you know, by FBI agents. Every city, small or large, you can think of wanted a chapter of the Black Panther Party. We would send members of the organization to help connect them to us, but it was uh, destabilizing in the sense it was somewhat chaotic, the way the party was growing, and it was too fast and too big. Speaking about the parallels between the Black Panthers and Black Lives Matter, and the, um, you know, Black Lives Matter has been called the new civil rights movement. Um, In your view, Stanley, how are they similar and where do they diverge? Well, I mean, I, I think they're similar in that, you know, Black Lives Matter is, is this kind of ground up movement that's, you know, basically young people. Um, and it's kind of taken off because of uh, events in the news. And, and uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. I mean, look, we're, we're kind of at the very beginning uh, of a movement. You know, hopefully we're at the beginning of we'll, we'll see where it goes. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the Panther movement by the, uh, young people today, Black Lives Matter and, and other movements, because there's you know a whole bunch of other groups, splinter groups, you know, people who belong to two or three different groups. But I, I, I think there's a whole lot of lessons. You know, the Panthers were were really good at, at, at getting media attention, and they were really good at organizing and, and, and you know, getting people to join. They weren't so good at, at, at understanding that they were going to be in, infiltrated and dealing with that infiltration, and they weren't so good at, at, at dealing with the conflicts that come up, you know, you know, when you have an organization, that conflicts will arise. Uh, there's also an interesting quote by Bobby Seale where 
he refutes the idea that the Panthers are anti-white. Now, what's interesting about that is that the same charge has been made against Black Lives Matter. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, I think it's ridiculous. You know, it's kind of like if you say black people are great, that doesn't mean white people are bad. You know, it has nothing to do with that. You know, to say black lives matter has nothing to has, says nothing about, you know, white lives don't matter. It says that, you know, black people are being slaughtered disproportionately by police forces all across the country. Black people are being locked up disproportionately by police uh, all across the country. So, you know, you, you need a Black Lives Matter movement. I don't think you need a White Lives Matter. Examiner made a report back here, the last Sunday's paper, that we were anti-white, that we hold no bones, this is a quote, hold no, pick no bones about being anti-white. We, this is a bold-faced lie. We don't hate nobody because of their color. We hate oppression. We hate murder of black people in our communities. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about that quote uh, from Bobby, though, is that you could almost like juxtapose his exact words onto any statement by any Black Lives Matter organizer, and it would just fit like a glove. Yeah, I mean, Bobby's statement is, is, is incredible. You know, it's from back then, you know, back in like 1967, 68, and it's still true today. Well, Stanley, it's been Really interesting talking with you here. Uh, Once again, I'm Eric Arnold from Oak Culture. This is Making Contact, and Stanley's film is called The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. Thanks so much, Stanley, for all that you do. Thank you. So great to be here. Great to see you. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To get our podcast, check out our website at radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Jasmine Lopez, Laura Flynn, and Quan Booth. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.